Welcome to the latest episode of Season 2 of Football and Covered. In Season 1, we took you inside Blackburn and Leeds, Portsmouth and Liverpool, FIFA and a lot more. Heard about extraordinary stories of football chaos, cock-ups and outright corruption. This season, we're going inside eight more Premier League clubs as well as having two special episodes, one about after the Premier League and one about the very future of club football at the highest level. I'm your host, Will Brazier, and every episode, I'll be joined by Nick Harris from Sporting Intel. Nick, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Raring to go on this one. We've had some shocking statements over the first series and, of course, the second series, but there's one we're going to get to very shortly. Um, that you're actually a Saints fan, aren't you? I am. I, I confess at this point. I think I might have mentioned it before, but I am actually a Saints fan. And so this episode for me, where we're looking at some of the strange and funny and uh, depressing and exciting times at Southampton in the last couple of decades, it is particularly special to me. Well, so it's not just me and Nick. Each episode will be joined by a special guest, usually a fan of the club we're talking about or someone who has followed them very closely. As well as sharing all the usual inside stories from each club, we'll be looking, of course, at the owners of the club, how the current owners came to be there and where they've taken the club so far and also what's next. It's been a topsy-turvy season for most football clubs for 2020 and 2021. And in the Premier League, this hasn't been more true than at Southampton, who were top in November, albeit briefly, had another 9-0 defeat and endured a nine-game run of not winning a match recently. And that is against the backdrop of being as low as League One a decade ago before climbing back into the Championship for 2011-12 season and then getting back to the Premier League in the summer of 2012. Nick is a Saints fan as well as a reporter who has covered the club on and off the field over different points over the last 25 years. But we're delighted to have another Saints supporter on as our special guest today. That's Ben Stanfield, who was on Twitter at Ben Stanners and also hosts the brilliant Total Saints podcast. Ben, how are you? Not too bad, Will. Yeah, apart from that sort of uh, running you gave about Saints and how emotional it is at the moment, to be honest. But yeah, nice to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on. I was going to say, even I was getting a bit depressed going through it all. Um, first of all, talk a bit about the podcast. You've had some amazing guests on there and... I mean, as a Saints fan, you just must love doing it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm Southampton lad, born and bred. Um, been following them 35 years or so. Um, a bit like Nick, I think, through the ups and downs and lucky enough to watch them at the Dow and St Mary's and follow Matt Letizia's career right up to that last minute goal against Arsenal at the Dow. And there's been some incredible moments. And yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I moved out of the area about 10 years ago and not too far away from Nick now, actually. And to keep myself involved uh, and uh, some of the relationships I had with the club um, started the podcast and uh, it's it's gone from sort of strength to strength it's uh, a lot of blood sweat and tears as I'm sure you guys will know putting something together like this but yeah been really lucky where we've had some fantastic ex-Saints on like Letizia, Franny Benali, James Beattie I was lucky enough to speak to Ricky Lambert, Terry Payne you know legends of the club to be honest and then we just celebrated 150 episodes a couple of weeks back by speaking to Laurie McMenemy, who of course won the 1976 FA Cup with Saints probably our most successful manager ever and uh Halfway through as well, we did a, a tribute to Marcus Lieber, which was 10 years on from when he took over at Saints and uh, probably a nice segue into today. Ben, the connection for you and Southampton is very clear. But Nick, how do we go from a Nottingham-born lad to Southampton support and to now living in Scotland? Well, actually, I was born in Derby, brought up in Nottingham, uh, but my dad was from Southampton. He lived in a Regent's Park area of Southampton, about 15 minutes walk from the Dell. 
couple of uh, long penalty clearances from the docks. It was in the blood, frankly. I was wearing Southampton kits from the age of about three or four. Um, the first football match that I remember clearly, I wasn't there, but my dad was. He was in the at Wembley on that, the best day in football history, obviously, in 1976. He was sitting just behind the Royal Box. So I've got the rosette from that day. I remember that's really, the, as I said, the first football match I remember clearly. And so once you, you know, what it's like when you're a kid and you just have football players who are your heroes. My hero was Nicky Holmes, who was a very young man that day uh, and played a key role in that finals. And so it was really in my blood. And when you're that passionate about football when you're six and you wear the kit and you stand outside the grounds afterwards waiting for autographs, there was no way that just because I happened to be growing up in Nottingham, it didn't really matter to me because I was always going to be a Saints fan. So I've had some, you know, amazing times. I've seen so many of Letitia's goals. Um, I was there at the very last match at the Dell in that game when Letitia sort of spam around in the box and booted home for that winner. It was kind of set in stone that it was obvious that something miraculous was on the cards that day and he delivered it. Um, I'd go to a lot of away games in the Midlands away at Coventry. There's a particular... Latisse 30 yard screamer in a 1-1 draw that stands out. I don't know about you, Ben. Other other favourite matches? So yeah, I mean, Inter Milan for me as well. Um, I think as a, a non-top six fan, you never expect to go to some of the, the sort of big stadiums around the world, but uh, going across there a few years back to watch Saints in the San Siro and true style, I think Inter Milan had one shot on target and beat us 1-0, which is very Saints to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, um, you know, it was good to be at the, the Johnson's Paint Trophy, which I'm sure we'll come on to in 2010 to see them win at Wembley because like uh, you, I'm not old enough to necessarily remember being at uh, the uh, FA Cup final in 76. But I think that's the thing, isn't it, for you know clubs that aren't part of the top six, is you, you know that there's going to be a few drubbins along the way. We'll mention one in the intro there. We've had a, a couple the last couple of years, but you know that every so often there's going to be a, a magical goal or a magical match that you'll be able to look back on for years to come. I mean, I don't know how much interaction you've ever had with Latisse. Have you Has Latisse been on? Yeah, so we, we were lucky enough to have him on a couple of seasons back yeah. um, just to sort of chat about, you know, his journey from Guernsey to obviously playing with Saints and being very loyal. And as you say, I mean, one of the few players to have scored 100 Premier League goals, which is a great effort when you consider the club that he was at. Yeah. I mean, I did an interview with him at the Independent at the start of the 98-99 season, which was no wins in the first nine, three wins in the first 20 games, only climbed to 17th place in the 36th game of the season. So spent the whole season in the relegation zone, won the last three games to stay up. But at the beginning of that season, I'd done this interview with Latisse and he was just, you know, sitting at a Formica table at the training ground, having baked beans on a jacket potato, I think it was, you know. uh, That's quite healthy for him, I think. Yeah, exactly. And, (laughs) and, um, And that was good fun. And it was nice to meet him and chat. And he was the one telling me about the Alan Ball years and how Ball, you know, his team talk comprised of get the ball to Latisse. Just briefly, I, I remember uh, going to the Dow as a kid and watching the warm-ups. And uh, this was in the days when the players sort of, they didn't really have the, the coaches and the staff that they do. You know, you watch them now and they have all these drills and the cones and stuff, don't you? And uh, in those days, they used to come out and run across the pitch backwards and forwards and do their, you know, star jumps and stuff like that. Latisse just used to come out and stand on the edge of the area. <laughs> and basically the goalkeeping coach would whip across into the keeper. The keeper would catch it, roll it out to Latiz. Latiz would just have a shot and that was basically his warm-up. <laughs> Will, come on, you're a neutral. You must have some Latiz memories as well. Or was he before your time? I actually had to, I would say chaperone him. Um, I had to look after Matt Latizier, Sam Allardyce, Paul Merson, Adebayo Akinfenwa 
and there was one other for for the day um so that was quite Sounds a, like a good night out <laughs> yeah yeah fortunately there was uh, no alcohol involved but yeah no i used to live down in southampton at, at uni so it was a, a long time after the uh, letizia's but i just really used to love when i was going up the dell because there was a, there was a game on the playstation one called premier league all-stars and it was the only game that had all the grounds on there and obviously the dell well, you guys will know more than me but it's like so unique and I just always used to be Southampton and enjoy playing at the the smaller stadium. It's, and you don't get that now, do you? Because obviously I know why uh, St Mary's was built, but it's, it's not got the character that the Dell had. Absolutely. I mean, the Dell, for obvious reasons, my favourite football ground ever. I mean, we, we would go to the Dell a lot during the season. We would go to a lot of home games, sort of... Uh, whatever it was, 170 miles, I think, each way. So we'd go down on a Friday night, watch Saturday 3 o'clock, which is when, uh, for our younger listeners, football matches used to happen at, at 3 <laughs> o'clock on a Saturday. And the Dell, I don't know, living in Scotland, Ben, I don't know if you've ever been to Tynecastle. I have, yeah, yeah. Tynecastle, for me, is the one ground that, just in terms of atmosphere, you know, small, close to the pitch, atmospheric. But yeah, the Dell is a, a sad loss to football. And Saints really struggle with it when they move to St Mary's. I think they got their first win in October of that season having moved there in August you know they, they struggled to adapt to it as well I think having lost that uniqueness as you said Will of sort of having the crowd on top and that almost used to get on top of oppositions they were one or two nil down before they even used to come out of the Dell I was just going to finish finally before we get into like the sort of more roller coaster years the highs and the lows but Matt Letizia Ben hmm. uh, I think I, I'm a bit of a nostalgia nerd so I've been listening to a lot of 90s football podcasts but a lot of them speak about the sort of uh, maybe not under wasted potential, but like the lack of opportunity that Matt got at England level. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you look at Letizia and obviously I think we joke about it, but he wasn't someone that was renowned for his work ethic and his defensive work and things like that. And I think, you know, he obviously um, had a bit of a volatile relationship, I think, with Glenn Hoddle and Terry Venables didn't really fancy him. And I think he won eight caps in the end or something like that. But uh, I think there's lots of neutrals that would say he deserved to play for England a lot more than he did. But again, it comes back to maybe the club that he was playing for. He was very loyal to Saints, you know, he said his family was settled. He enjoyed the fact that he could hop back and forwards to Guernsey to see his family. But I think we all know, you know, Southampton aren't necessarily a club that England managers sort of think, oh, if someone's at Southampton, I need to call them up. It's always the the Manchester United's, the Liverpool's, Arsenal's. Maybe if he'd moved on to a Spurs or something, he would have got more opportunities. But I think there's a few mitigating factors, absolutely. Yeah, I think he had an opportunity to go to several other places, particularly Spurs. Mm. And as Ben says, he decided to stay in Southampton. I'm not going to say he liked being a big fish in a small pond, but he he was adored by the Southampton fans. It was his realm. It was unconditional love for Matt Letizia and he delivered just some of the most sensational goals and seasons, in, generally in keeping us up rather yeah. than actually achieving anything. And um, it was Hoddle, wasn't it, who had the cunning plan to um, play Letizia in a England B game oh, against yeah. Russia yeah. to sort of finally show him up as the fraud he was that he couldn't deliver <laughs> he scored a hat trick. On, an, on an international stage yeah and he scored a hat trick and then he didn't pick up anyway <laughs> Should we get into the sort of Rupert Lowe era then because for me growing up uh, I was born 91 I'm not throwing any shade there Nick at all <laughs> but Southampton for me were just the Premier League club for all the time growing up and then obviously that moved to St Mary's and We've seen it with so many clubs where they move to a new stadium and it's supposed to be the sort of catalyst to go on to European football and, and success. But it didn't quite happen like that, did it, Ben? No, I think when you look back at it now, and I think Nick shared some uh, data with us beforehand, you look at the, the amount of managers we had. And uh, I think Rupert Lowe obviously came in and 
I don't think he's particularly well thought of now when you look back at his time with the club. Um, I, I think he's got a, a relationship with fans that didn't really work out. I think probably because they see him as the the face of the individual that got us into administration in 2009. But I think it'd be a bit unfair to say that he wasn't trying to do his best for the club. You know, I think ultimately he, he wanted them to float on the stock exchange. You know, the better they did, the more money they were going to make. I think that was evident. But I think he just came across Will as this sort of, um, I'll try and say this diplomatically, sort of, pompous and pretentious almost just that you know I know what I'm doing I've, I've run successful businesses I can happily run a, a football club and uh, I think he changed the whole culture of it and you know as I said we interviewed Laurie McMenemy earlier and uh, I think the phrase he used with us was Rupert was an unbelievable pillock of a fella you know and this is someone that's had 50 year <laughs> affiliation with the club and uh, I think the fact was you know Rupert Lowe he came in and I think he tried to turn it into a business and Saints are one of those clubs that are they're underpinned by being a sort of family feel and that goes for everyone that's working there and things like that as well and I think just the culture changed and uh, I think the results ultimately um, proved that on the pitch because you look at Lowe's tenure and arguably we just went backwards and backwards until the worst happened. Nick, you can't run football clubs like a traditional business, can you? And that, is that what evidently showed over this tenure? Yeah, I mean, this is now we're in the moneyed era, we're in the Premier League era. We're in a completely different financial and cultural environment football-wise in the low era, to say the era in the late 70s, early 80s, when Southampton were routinely a sort of top 10 club with England internationals, multiple England captains in the same side, and, and there was a much uh, more level playing field across football. Football really was transformed by the Premier League era, which obviously began in the 1992-3 season. The money started pouring in, and then Euro 96, loads of foreign players came in. The money from the Sky Deals got much, much bigger. And suddenly, football seemed to be a place where there was money to be made. And I think, ultimately, this is probably what inspired Rupert so he tried all sorts of different things. He did invest in the academy. He did put money into the club. He did invest in managers. I mean, you know, in front of us, we're looking at the last 20 years, the owners, the divisions, the managers, top scorers. Looking at this, it's a bit of a trip down memory lane to look at Gray, Strachan, Sturrock, Wigley, Harry, Burley, Pearson, Water, Pardew, Atkins, Pochettino, top scorers, Pahars, Beatty, Crouch, Fuller, Raziak. Stern John, McGoldrick. I mean, the sort of journey we've been on. But yes, yeah, so Rupert Lowe was in charge there for that era. That's how he came about, I think, ultimately um, looking to make money and obviously reached an, an FA Cup final as well. I mean, who can forget the 2003 FA Cup final? I was there at the Millennium Stadium. I'm sure it burns brightly in the memories of all neutral football fans because it was such a, a really exciting game, not... <laughs> Ben, what can you remember? Yeah, I, I can. It was um, actually the semi-final was probably more fun, wasn't it, Nick? Beating Absolutely, Watford at Villa yeah. Park was a, a tremendous day out, I think, when you win. But yeah, the thing I remember about the FA Cup final, I mean, Saints played in yellow and blue a bit like 1976. And that was down at Cardiff, obviously, because Wembley was still being rebuilt then. But uh, it was just a sea of yellow and blue, wasn't it? And the, the thing I remember about that, actually, Nick, is that I think Klaus Lindervan tried to pull Thierry Henry down after about 25 seconds when he was clean through. And <laughs> I think somehow Henry stayed on his feet because Lindervan would have been sent off and that would have probably been the end of the game. But uh, Absolutely. It, it wasn't a classic. And yeah, obviously Saints lost 1-0 in the end, which uh, made it a little bit more forgettable. But um, I, I think, as I said earlier, getting to a, a cup final, I mean, obviously at the time of recording, Saints are still in the FA Cup this season as well. And, um, you know, the chance to get to Wembley again as a fan, I don't think you can ever turn that down, can you? No, absolutely not. And my abiding memory for, from that day, apart from obviously ultimately the disappointment, was I was actually in the press box that day. Saints fans were over there to my left. The Arsenal end was that way. And uh, the trophy presentation was just finished. 
and the Arsenal fans are streaming out. All the Saints fans are still there. They've stayed not just for Arsenal's trophy presentation, but they're just staying in the Saints' end, just sort of savouring it. I mean, as a football fan, this will sound terribly sad that you're staying in the ground watching the team that's just beaten you pick up the trophy. But for a club like ours, which, let's face it, is about the same stature as every club outside the very big ones, we're all sort of medium small clubs compared to Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal. Those days are really important. Will, you're a Birmingham fan who's won a League Cup in your lifetime. You know what we're talking about here. Well, we actually did beat Arsenal in the final, guys. I don't want to uh, to be that guy. (laughs) But but I think even if we'd have lost that day as well, it's sort of... like My granddad was there at the League Cup final in 2011. The last Cup final he had, I think, was the 1956 Burt Troutman final. So, I mean... You have to wait a long time in between if you're not one of these traditional top six clubs. So any day out like that, I can see why it's sort of savoured to the max. I mean, let's talk a bit more about Rupert Lowe. I mean, Rupert was famously a hockey-playing, rugby-loving businessman. (laughs) His hobbies included duck shooting. Now, I mean, it's just not your football fan demographic to sort of talk about duck shooting. I think, Ben, you've got an anecdote about the duck shooting, haven't you? That's right. So I think in the early days, he was obviously trying to build rapport, wasn't he, within the club and the squad. And I think, I think you know, as, as we know, chairmen never really get on particularly well with the manager and the and the first team squads these days. So they try to keep themselves separate, don't they? But uh, I think, yeah, Rupert Lowe tried to sort of build this connection by taking the first team out on a, a bonding trip, as he called it. Um, so I, I think they all sort of rocked up. He, he lived at Winchester away I think didn't he up that, that neck of the yeah. woods and um, yeah essentially it turned out that he was taking them duck shooting right so the, all these <laughs> players turned up and you know they're just shooting defenceless ducks which you know again is, is just bizarre isn't it but I'm not sure it went down particularly certainly as Rupert planned anyway Nick no, that's just crazy, isn't it? Can you imagine I'm just Sean Dyke <laughs> taking his Burnley lads on a duck shooting trip? So, you know, <laughs> team bonding. It'd be more paintballing, I think, Sean Dyke. <laughs> yeah, or, or proper SAS stuff. Yes, know. that's it. Right, let's smear our faces in mud and crawl to France or whatever. <laughs> But um, I got on all right with Rupert Lowe professionally and personally. I had to deal with him because he was the owner of the club. So I would speak to him about stuff. He was always very courteous. He was absolutely accessible. You could have conversations with him about some of the decisions he made. I mean, obviously he did things that were ultimately worthy of criticism. I mean, the mess we got into, the managerial changes, down into the championship by the time at 5-6. And then, of course... You know, the appointment of Harry Redknapp in December 2004 just didn't sit well with me. I don't know where you are on Harry, Ben, but I never thought that was a good idea. When you look back now, you think, yeah, it certainly wasn't a good idea. I think the trouble was, as you mentioned earlier, we'd had sort of Steve Wigley in charge, hadn't we? And bless him, Steve had done a great job as a coach and he'd worked you know, his way up through the club and uh, I think got the job as a, a manager, should never have got that opportunity. And I think probably we all thought, well, thank goodness we haven't got Steve anymore. We've actually got an experienced manager in. And I think if I remember correctly, I mean, it started off fairly well with Harry and then it just deteriorated. And yeah, we were signing players like um, Olivier Bernard and Callum Davenport and all these sort of journeymen that were just coming in that showed zero <laughs> interest uh, in really trying to keep Southampton up and uh, yeah I mean it made it even worse when he went back down to them locked down the road and then uh, I, I seem to remember a game at Fratton Park that we lost 4-1 where Harry was manager and just yeah it was just a crescendo of sort of chaos really wasn't it? It was and but also it was obviously Harry is king of the jungle so that's all kudos and Harry is is also to some people a bit marmite and I think for me it was wherever Harry's been his mantra has always been we'll be all right if we can get a few bodies in and then (laughs) when it looks chaotically bad and relegation is imminent 
it goes from if we get a few bodies in, we'll be fine, to it was a hopeless situation when I arrived. There was no realistic <laughs> way I was going to turn it around. And it was just like, F off. You know, it's just like, <laughs> don't give me that. And I know all managers do that kind of thing. Yeah, we've got a tough task on our hands, but if we get a few bodies in, we'll be fine. So there's that. And then you've got, you know, we know what sort of character is in terms of his background in football, his approach. He's very much a man manager. He's very much old school. And Rupert must have known this and presumably have trusted that this was going to work. So to then try and make a marriage, and this is like one of the most jaw-dropping press conferences, you know, in Southampton recent history, when Rupert introduces Sir Clive Woodward in the summer of 2005 and says he's going to make him technical director. I don't know if you remember this, Will, or you, Ben, the cringeworthiness of having Harry, Rupert, I think, was in the middle and Clive Woodward's on the other. It was so uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't remember the press conference so much, but I do remember there was lots of jokes going around about, oh, are they going to replace the goals at uh, Staplewood Training Ground with rugby posts now? And they're going to try and teach, you know, all those sort of things. So there was a lot of sort of jest about it. And, you know, obviously it never worked out in the end, did it? Again, it was one of those things. Rupert was definitely, he was into innovation. He wanted to try different things. He tried different things in terms of the youth setup and recruitment. They were very innovative in some ways in the way that they were able to spread the net wider because they were they got special permissions at different points to have. Because you were a team in a port town, your 20-mile radius or your 50-mile radius or whatever it is, has got the sea. So they actually had dispensation to recruit elsewhere in the country. I think that's how they got bailed, didn't they? So Lowe was doing different things that were innovative. And who's to say that that maybe Clive Woodward, as a brilliant project manager when the England rugby team won the World Cup, <laughs> couldn't have come into a different sport and put in place bits and pieces. But it was never, ever, ever going to work him in tandem with Harry. And so ultimately it was a bad idea. So you get relegated, you then get boardroom chaos with Michael Wilde. Wilde takes over in 2006-7, then uh, Rupert comes back and they're sort of in it together. And then Rupert's back in 2009 and ultimately as we go down again. So at the club's getting towards the lowest ebb, League One, that was ultimately under Rupert's watch. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's the fact that that's probably the lasting memory is when we did go into administration, we had, I think it was £27 million worth of debt and most of that was owed to Barclays and Aviva because of the new stadium. Yeah. You know, that's essentially which Rupert had driven. And I think, you know, as you were mentioning earlier, Will, you know, undoubtedly we had to move from the Dal if we wanted to progress as a club. I don't think any fan would disagree with that. And I totally agree with what you said, Nick, in that I think it's unfair to criticise Rupert Lowe 100% because he doesn't deserve that. However, the memory is, yeah, you know, we went into administration with £27 million worth of debt for a football stadium that he'd kind of made it his baby to basically build that. Absolutely. It's catch-22, isn't it? You have to move to a new stadium because the Dell was famously 15,232. Yeah, I'd take that. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously St Mary's is, you know, double, basically. You know, Arsenal have had similar problems in as much as they moved to Emirates. It wasn't necessarily great form when they got there. They've got hundreds of millions of pounds of building debt, which obviously then you could argue hampered Arsene Wenger for quite a number of years because suddenly they became a selling club rather than investing club. Tottenham might face these issues in the coming years as they have to service hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds of debt for a big new stadium. So that was definitely part of it. And um, and then you end up with the wilderness years from early 2000 to summer 28, when limping through to summer 2009, which sort of all sorts of board changes. There was Michael Wilder, as we said, Leon Crouch, Rupert again. And then by April 2009, administration and a very, very real threat of going bust. I mean, what do you remember about that time? 
the reality didn't really set in, did it? I think ultimately it's one of those things that you sort of only realise after it's happened, the seriousness of the, the situation. I think there was lots of conversations going on, wasn't there? There was a, a group that Letizier was supporting that were trying to take over and they got a period of exclusivity and you thought, oh, we're going to get saved. And then I think they were having a bit of an argument with the, the Football League about the deduction of points and things like that. And then they couldn't get it done. And I think, again, you know, you sort of thought, well, that's the end of that. And a friend of mine, Adam Leach, who used to work for the Daily Echo, said it was never as bad as the fact they were going to go bust tomorrow type thing but yeah. I think the more and more the situations came up Nick and people came forward and then they disappeared again you thought well we're clearly going to need a, a bit of a saving a bit of a hero here and um, thankfully Marcus arrived in the end. That was just a strange time for me because I was obviously reporting on this and you're just thinking this doesn't need to happen you just think your football club's been there and saying it's the case since the 1880s you know your football clubs are not institutions that should or need to die and there was a possibility that it wouldn't and I think it was a pretty stark time for a few weeks there. And then suddenly, as you said, um, along comes, certainly to me, an unknown businessman called Marcus Liebherr. And I think, Ben, you'll be good on, on this because you did a podcast on the 10-year anniversary of the Liebherr takeover with uh, Marcus's grandson, Noah, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, And I was really struck by that. And again, a really good episode of Total Saints podcast, if anyone wants to go back and listen to your episode of that. Because I didn't realise how invested... He became in the city, in his local curry house, in and how he still is. What was he going? Anna Carly's, was he, Ben? <laughs> I think he actually said that KFC in Southampton was one of his favourite restaurants, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> it was KFC, but was there a, what was the... Oriental unit? Lounge was the was other it one. The Oriental yeah. Lounge, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure anyone that's listening in Southampton will remember those. But uh, I was lucky enough to reach out to him and he kindly... Uh, came back because obviously sadly Marcus had passed away so we were never going to have the opportunity to speak to him and um, I think you're right I mean even now you know Katrina's obviously still got a 20% interest in the club 12 years on and I think you can understand that at the time they didn't know much about Southampton other than the fact that it was a, a club that was available um, obviously as you mentioned I'm sure we'll talk about Nicola Cortese sort of sold the opportunity to Marcus but yeah I think you could sense from Noah the enthusiasm that the family have for the journey that they've been on. I think, again, you know, as we were discussing, and we all know this from a Birmingham City point of view, the club is underpinned by the fans. You know, we will never uh, not stop supporting the team. And I think ultimately they realised quite quickly that there was a big committed fan base that were going to help drive the club forward. They could clearly um, see the potential and then, um, I've been practicing my German. I didn't do very good at German at school, but uh, I think at the time Marcus called it Ein Schappenschen, which is a, a bargain. You know, that's essentially what he said. He'd uh, paid around 13 million, I think. And yeah, Noah pretty much um, during that time has, uh, has sort of got to know some of the players and uh, obviously the staff around the club. And I think, yeah, ultimately, as we were discussing earlier, I think they came in with a view that we know Cortesay was very um, driven to to drive um, the club forward. But ultimately, I think bringing that family feel and that city feel back to the club. And uh, yeah, you could absolutely sense that in the conversation that I had with Noah. Katerina still owns 20%, which is which is interesting. Every Saints fan is in immense lifelong gratitude to the Lieber family for saving the club. Like you said, he said it was a bargain. It, it, it needn't necessarily have been a bargain if we'd continued the fall and gone down to the fourth tier. But we didn't because of Cortese and... Marcus's money and a plan that worked but before we get on to Cortese and how much he actually really drove it and was really the inspiration behind getting Lieber to do the deal in the first place Ben you tell me about 2010 
Yeah, I think ultimately, you know, we started that season with the points deduction because, of course, we'd obviously um, come down with the administration over our heads. So Cortese came in and we made Alan Pardew the manager. So I think that was quite a good appointment from the fact that he'd obviously had Premier League experience and uh, sold this five-year plan. And straight away, I mean, we spent a million pound, I think it was, Nick on, on Ricky Lambert in that 2009 summer. I mean, again, you look back now, I mean, I think it was 115 goals in about 200 games. I don't think there'll ever be a million pound that's better spent in football, certainly in the the future. But um, it was a tough time because, of course, he was trying to build a squad at the same time of the club trying to find its feet and try and work out what it was doing from a strategic point of view. Um, but, uh, you know, the pinnacle of that season was undoubtedly getting to the, the Johnson's Paint Trophy, winning at Wembley against Carlisle 4-1. And for me, you know, I'll always think back of that, that overriding memory that I have of Marcus, Nick, is when the players are up there and they're lifting the trophy, Marcus was known as this gentle giant, you know, massive guy, very, very quiet, very humble. If you look at the picture of when Dean Hammond's lifting the trophy, you can see Marcus Lieber behind him and he's got the tiniest camera in the world and he's basically <laughs> taking a picture of the guys. I mean, it's ridiculous. And uh, I think for me, that'll always be the, the memory because he, he passed on a couple of months after that. And to know that he'd passed away, having seen the team that he'd sort of saved almost, going to Wembley, winning a trophy, it felt like um, you know a really, really magical moment. And I think for me, whilst that 2010 season was a tough one, they didn't get promoted, obviously, and you know they did the following season but just you know almost being able to sort of look back and think it's kind of the start of a new chapter you know we could have gone out of business but here we are we're now taking our first steps forward and who knows what the future is going to bring yeah I'm just looking here at the lineup for that day well you probably know it off by heart I didn't I'm looking at this I'm thinking who <laughs> even like 11 years long so we've got Kelvin Davison goal obviously and then uh, a back four of Dan Harding, Raidi, Jaidi, oh, Jose legend. Fonte yeah. and Joseph Mills Mikhail Antonio, right of midfield, Paul Wooten and Dean Hammond in the centre of midfield and Adam Lalana on the left wing and then Ricky and Papawaigo up top. I mean, that is, you know, obviously that's a League One team, but that's how far we've come from that. But yeah, I think Cortese, we need to come back to Cortese because he's a key figure. He was a business associate of Marcus. I think he actually is the one who spotted the opportunity. I'm not saying he wanted to play real life football manager with someone else's money, <laughs> but he wanted to play football manager in real life with someone else's money. And he did. <laughs> and he was very good at it. So he persuaded Marcus to buy the club. The spanking newish stadium. The facilities are there. The club's got potential. It's obviously got a track record of developing players you know everyone wants to find a load of young players develop them bring them on sell them for money hopefully keep some of them and Southampton were very and have been very successful at that over the years so he saw the opportunity he was a canny guy he was a Swiss Italian former banker and businessman friend and associate of Liebherr he said look do this investment and I will run Saints for you and that's what happened he ran Saints as his personal fiefdom from summer 2009 to 2014 it was the banker part of his job that brought him into Southampton because he was the banker who did the transaction for Lieber. I think he suggested it to him, did the transaction for him and took Southampton out of administration and then became the executive chairman. Uh, and I should say at this point, Liverpool could have saved themselves a lot of money by buying Saints for £30 million then instead of <laughs> buying all our players since. So five years of absolutely massive leaps and bounds into the Premier League, started that process of hoping to make Southampton a stable club and then left in 2014 after irreconcilable differences between himself and the Liebers. I'll come back to a bit more on that in a minute, but what did you have many dealings or what are your memories of Cortese? 
So I never had the opportunity to speak to him. He's someone that I'd love to to get on the podcast, but he's uh, he's a bit like the Scarlet Pimpernel. I don't quite know what's happened to him these <laughs> days. But uh, yeah, I think you're right, Nick, in the assessment of him. And I think Saints fans, I speak for my own opinion here, maybe, but he's, he's a bit of a Marmite character. You know, I, I think absolutely we can't reiterate enough. You know, we owe him for selling the opportunity to Marcus Lieber for essentially helping to save the club. And I don't think that can ever be something we take away. And the positive I would say about him, you know, you're you're spot on. He was ambitious. He had this plan when he came into the club. I think we see so many football clubs these days that, you know, you could arguably say it's, it's Saints in the current era. It's just about staying in the Premier League. That's their strategy. It's, you know, it's a season at a time almost where his was, you know, we're going to get to the Premier League in five years. They did it in three years in the end. And just briefly to touch back on Ricky, that almost epitomised the journey of the club. You know, a Roy the Ravers type working in a beetroot factory, it ends up with him scoring a, a goal for England against Scotland with his first touch. I mean, that was almost like the journey for Saints. And uh, I think with Cortese, um, you know, he absolutely drove people to make sure this is where we want to get to. And you're either, you know, with us or you can leave. You know, it's that sort of management style. It was a little bit rule by fist. And that probably takes me on to the, the negative side of him, which I think he probably, um, you know, unsettled a few people. I, I remember there was the incident, I think he laid off the sort of older generation of program sellers because he wanted this new sort of slick way of selling programs and things like that and uh, I think just ruffled a few feathers the the wrong way maybe and um, as you say he wasn't afraid to live and die by his own decisions um, but I think ultimately in the end you know it was probably going to end in uh, tears. Yeah it was his way or I'm out and I heard a remarkable thing at the time of his exit which came from someone very close who knew Nicola very well and knew how passionate he was about my way or the highway. My understanding is when when Liebherr bought the club, he kind of made an, an agreement with Cortese that the club is worth £13 million today. That's what I've paid for it. If at some point down the future, we turn it into a successful Premier League football club and sell it for however much, £100 million, £200 million. I think there was a gentleman's agreement, as I'm told, that Cortese would, having been the force that transformed the club, take a cut of the profit from the sale of the club. And so when Katerina, as I understand it, decided sort of enough was enough in Nicola doing everything his own way, I think he was the one-man board at one point, literally the one-man board. So oversight and scrutiny of decisions and spending, it was Nicola scrutinising himself. And I think Katerina wanted some independent directors and to have a bit more oversight to be able to say, well, look, just checks and balances. And Cortese was adamant that he didn't need checks and balances. I've come this far. And I think they got into a negotiation where they were like, well, this is not going to work out. So they offered him something like £20 million as a severance deal to acknowledge his role in how much he'd taken the club. And on a point of principle, he refused to have the money which again just shows you maybe he didn't need the money. I don't know how much you make as a banker, but um, <laughs> that was it. And so he was out. And at that point, Poch was the manager. The setup looked good to go. Systems were start being put in place for smooth transition. You know, this whole ethos of we can't change the club's policy every time we change a manager. We can't have different recruitment. You've got the famous black box recruitment tools. You've got the analytics, not quite marginal gains, but um, all that sort of, you know, more scientific and consistent approach. And so it proved through the Poch reign, the replacement was Cumin. Through the Cumin reign, you know, it was all smooth. And then we come to Claude Puel, who didn't work out, but the system seemed to be in place. And those years, the Poch years and the Cumin years were great, weren't they? Yeah, totally. I, I think that season with Cumin, when we finished 
sixth was probably my most enjoyable as a Saints fan of the 35 years. I mean, you look at the, the team, the way they played. I mean, we had Virgil van Dijk, Sadio Mane, Dusan Tadic, Graziano Powell, one of probably the best looking football I think I've ever seen in my life up front. <laughs> um, and you're right. I think it was just, uh, I think we all remember, don't we, that first photo. I, I know it went, it went virtual on, uh, or virus, sorry, on uh, social media of Koeman taking the picture out the training ground to say like first day at training, looking forward to it. And basically there was no players on the pitch because Les Reed had just sold them all. You know, it was like, that was the joke, wasn't it? And uh, um, I, I think, as you say, I mean, for for me, you, you know, Claude Puel, I think, got a bit of a hard time because as Leicester fans will know if they're listening, the football was a bit dull and we didn't score many goals and trying to follow on from Cumin that had been so successful and so much flair almost, I think that was kind of chalk and cheese, yeah. wasn't it? But that, that whole period with Pochettino, you know, what they both had, Pochettino and Cumin, was a nucleus of a really talented side. You know, the Poch had Luke Shaw, Ricky, Jay Rodriguez, Adam Lallana, Morgan Schneidlin. And then obviously I've just mentioned the players that Cumin had. And then to be fair to Claude, he didn't really have those players and we've been trying to catch up since really, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, that season, I'm just looking at the squad, obviously Fonte, Van Dyke. Bertrand, Stephen Davis. Um, I think Stephen Davis is one of the really underrated players for us. And Sadio Mane, obviously. Uh, Victor Wanyama, Dusan Tadic. I mean, oh. Pele, uh, Shane Long, when he could still score goals. Cedric, <laughs> when he was still good. Jordi Classy, Fraser Foster, Romeo. I mean, that were obviously, and then you've got JWP. But, you know, a good squad and eventually they all get sold. But yeah, that season was good and then obviously Cumin, who would always said you know I'm here for the long term the usual manager thing I'm here for the long term you know <laughs> and then obviously off he goes and um, Everton obviously worked out brilliantly for him so we come to 2018 now and the sale of 80% of the club to uh, Mr Gow for £210 million I mean what did you think what do you think now what is the motivation for the Gow family to be investing in Southampton I mean originally obviously Katarina put out a statement, I think, to say that they needed someone to come in to help the club move forward, to provide investment. And you could understand that maybe if that was the way it was sort of sold to her and to the club that as you say, this is a businessman that wants to invest his money in the UK. Um, I remember Ralph Kruger, who was the chairman at the time, was acting as Gal's uh, mouthpiece almost and saying that he loves the area. He's been here a lot. He wants to develop in Hampshire. You know, he's, he's come from a business, uh, Lander Sports, which I'm sure we'll talk about, who are, are very much around real estate and development and things like that, particularly. Um, I know they got a sporting arm as well at that time. So I think you could probably understand why the deal had been done because, um, as Noah said, you know, when he spoke to us, Katarina never really knew anything about football. She didn't want to own a football club. She inherited it, obviously, when Marcus um, died. And I think because of the relationship he had, you know, they could have easily sold the club straight away in 2010, 2011, but I think felt that they wanted to keep it going, particularly with the journey we're on. But, you know, at the moment, you look at it, I mean, as, as I understand it, Nick, you probably got more knowledge than me. He can't take his money out of China to invest, even if he wants to. I mean, this is a guy that's worth, I think, 2020, £3.1 billion. So it's not like he's short of money, but ultimately they're running the club as a sustainable um business the problem they've got is now of course we had a very successful model where we could sell players and that money we then reinvested in bringing through the next batch of players but they've been battling relegation the last two or three years and unsurprisingly as you joked earlier Liverpool have taken all our best players there's no one else left to sign you know now so I think that's been the, the challenge and yeah. you know you go back to sort of players like Mohamed Al-Yunisi Mario Lamina Sofiane Buffel Guido Carrillo Wesley Hoyt I mean they must have spent 80 to 100 million on those players and they're either on loan or have left on free transfers and that kind of epitomises probably the problem we've had. There's been a few embarrassing situations like LD Sports, the shirt sponsor, you know, who pulled out 
after this season's shirts had been printed with their name on. And so we were left without a sponsor at the beginning of this season. And we end up doing it with a, is it an Estonian betting company? Sportsbet IA? Yeah, I think Sportsbet IA, yeah. You know, and that, that doesn't look particularly savoury. There's obviously question marks now that the Chinese president's changed his mind and doesn't actually fancy his businessmen investing. And so there's been curtailment on foreign currency exports. And yet the situation is a bit opaque and the future looks far from certain in ownership terms. So that itself, I don't think is a massive concern. Um, unless, of course, things on the pitch took a bad turn. I mean, supposing we'd gone into this season, started really well, got to the top of the table, and then the season fell apart and relegation hung over us, <laughs> then there might be something to worry that about. Would never happen. But that wouldn't happen. <laughs> so everything looks bright. I think that's a good place to end. Oh, no, I think we're going to have to mention just the last few years. Bit turbulent, Pellegrino... Mark Hughes, and then Ralph. Now, we're sitting here in the middle of March recording this episode. It'll go out in a week or two. But at the middle of March, I don't think either of us can deny we've had a bit of a ropey streak on the pitch. And and things don't look very good. I mean, this will be time sensitive, so who knows what we'll do between now and this going out. But it has been a worrying time. I would like to say, personally, from my point of view, I think Ralph is the man to go forward. I think the board should back him. I think he should absolutely be the guy. There's clearly something very wrong right now and in the last few months um, at the club. Injuries was a massive part of it. Morale is obviously, you know, and confidence is shot. Um, but I think overall, I think you, you back Ralph Hassan-Hootl and and, uh, and you stick with it. That's my view sitting here in the middle of March. I don't know what you think, Ben. Yeah, I think anyone that uh, checks out my Twitter profile will see that it's a picture of me hugging Ralph Hasenhutl in his <laughs> office a couple of years back, so you can tell where my loyalty lies. So, so when yeah. you change your Twitter profile, we should start worrying. <laughs> you can tell it's bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, I think you're right. I mean, for me, we can't keep affording to sack managers. You know, Ralph's just signed a new four-year deal last summer. You know, as I understand it, it's going to cost the club about 18 million if they wanted to sack him. You know, so they, again, I don't think that will happen. And I, I totally with you, Nick. I mean, for me, he's got to learn. I think he's got to come up with different options on the pitch you know I think we've been found out a little bit maybe in the way that we're playing and teams have started to work us out but I suppose the underpinning thing with this is that he's created this playbook that they want um, players from the academy up to the first team to follow the style so that when they move up an age group they're literally ready to, to go they know what they're doing but the problem is you know when things are going well that's fine but you look at it at the moment the first team are struggling the under 23s are second to bottom I think in their league and have, have just shipped seven goals at Man City a couple of days ago the under 18s are bottom of their league so you sort of look at it and think well hold on a minute you know what is this playbook and if no one can understand what it is about you know when's it going to go so yeah. it's a big summer ahead I mean I feel like I said that the last two or three summers because we know with the the financial um, implications of the pandemic at the moment Saints I think they reported a loss of about 80 million uh, for 2019-20 I imagine 2020-21 is going to be pretty bad for lots of clubs because there's no fans and things like that but for me, yeah, they just need some stability. And you're right. I mean, I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a fairly good relationship with Martin Simmons and Toby Still, two guys that are absolutely committed to doing the right things within the club and, and making it move forward with, you know, sort of ethical and maybe moral um, sort of uh, compass that we haven't had over previous years. So for me, stick with Ralph. Let's just get to the end of the season, try and have a good summer and then hopefully push on again next year. Yeah. And I think just to wrap up, this comes back to that, you know, hopefully this, this season, this series of, Football Uncovered, it's the similar theme for a club like Southampton and, and a lot of the other clubs we're going to be dealing with outside the very, very big boys. You kind of think, what is the point? And I think you have to come back to football clubs are community institutions. They mean a huge amount 
to you, to me, to all fans. I, I'm a Southampton fan because my dad was a Southampton fan, because his dad was a Southampton fan, because he went to the Della as a boy. It doesn't really matter that Southampton have never won anything of substance apart from the 1976 FA Cup and, and Johnson's paint. You know, days like losing an FA Cup final are very special. Bringing on players who become superstars, whether it's Gareth Bale or other good players that we've, that we've saw, Virgil van Dijk, you know, these are the things that matter. And actually, there's the bigger questions of should we be spending loads of money and wanting a billionaire owner who will try to spend hundreds of millions of pounds to get us to seventh or eighth in a really good season. I don't know that that's the right way for football to be running itself. But what I do want is I want a club with a set of values that invest in the youth, hopefully bring through players, try and retain as many of them as you can for as long as you can. And, and in a good season, you're in with a shout of winning a cup. And in a really, really, really freakish season, you know, there's a Leicester episode in this series, something miraculous could happen. It probably won't, but maybe one day it could. And I think that that's the sort of thing that a club like us can aspire to. Like, in the best season, being in contention with Cup and just holding the hope that one day you can have a miracle. I I agree. And I think just finally, you know, I was at the Etihad a few years ago. There was some banter going backwards between Saints fans and Man City fans. The Man City fans were singing Champions of England, you'll never sing that. In true Saints style, we went back with Johnson's paint trophy, you'll never win that. (laughs) And for me... You know, I think that epitomises being a Saints fan. As you say, it's a total roller coaster of a ride, Nick, but having a few laughs and a bit of humour along the way and just knowing that next Saturday could bring that magical result that you talk about for years to come. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot. And yeah, good luck with the rest of the series. Thank you very much for listening to Football Uncovered Season 2. Make sure you go and check out Ben on Twitter and that fabulous podcast as well. Make sure you follow Nick at Sport and Intel and we'll be back with another podcast very soon. <laughs>